Well, in recent weeks, I know uh, Roger Crawshaw has been uh, leading your thoughts, leading our thoughts as a church in the early verses of John's Gospel, in the prologue of John's Gospel, and thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a very uh, focused way. And in a sense, I want to continue that exercise, but through the letter to the Hebrews, and I hope in the coming occasions when I'm ministering on a Sunday morning to go fairly rapidly through the Hebrews with a particular aim to look again at the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the supremacy of the Son. Uh, It's he who wears the crown. Coronavirus, it's named after the crown, the sort of thing, the spikes that stick out rather like a mine. Well, it isn't the virus that's wearing the crown, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, God's Son, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and the Creator of all things. He's wearing the crown, and we need to get that firmly established in our hearts, and that is perhaps the main aim of looking at uh, some of these passages in Hebrews. And this morning we're looking at Hebrews chapter 1, and the translators, who, the people who arranged for the chapter and verse headings, they, they did it often with great wisdom and understanding. And there's reasons why they put chapter 2 where they have, but I suggest to you that there's also a good uh, case of putting the first four verses of chapter 2 back at the end of chapter 1. It kind of hangs together. Well, that by way of introduction, let us look in some detail then at what this passage tells us about Christ. And the first uh, thing we notice is that it tells us that he is God's supreme prophet. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, it says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. In other words, God who spoke through the Old Testament revelation, and he spoke through dreams and other ways, uh, often quite obscure ways and partial ways, has, he says in these last days, spoken to us fully through his Son. There is a a huge difference between that past revelation, that revelation given through the prophets, and this revelation, this unfolding, this uh, learning about God that has come through Jesus Christ, the Son. And in saying that, The author here is picking up on a a big theme in Scripture, which is to do with the prophesied Messiah, the one who would come at the last, uh, of whom the Old Testament prophets predict, uh, and who would come as God's anointed one, as God's Christ. And there are many things that the Old Testament says about that, but one of the strands of teaching is that he will come as a prophet. So Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says, 
I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. A prophet, someone who is foretold or is foretelling, someone who comes with a message from God. And we notice here, just briefly, we can see that Jesus, the Son, is the authentic prophet of God. It's the same God who sent the Old Testament prophets who has now sent his Son. We see here that he is the final prophet. Although God has spoken in the Old Testament through the prophets, and he's now speaking through his Son, and there's a finality about it. He's spoken in these last days unto us by his Son. What was before partial is now full and final. And then we notice that he is an anticipated prophet because it speaks about him as coming in these last days. Uh, These last days is nearly a technical phrase in the Bible and it means the days of the Messiah, the days in which God's Christ will come. And we know from the whole teaching of the Bible that it stands for that time period between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, when he will return in power and glory. Between Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus and the coming again of Jesus. In other words, we are in these last days. And what the writer here is telling us is that God has spoken therefore to us God has spoken to all people in these last days. Do you want to know what God is saying? Hear this prophet, Jesus. Do you want to know the meaning of life? Do you want to know why you're in this world? Do you want to know what God requires of you? Well, here's God's messenger. Here's God's full and final teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice he doesn't just make the statement. We've included the beginning of chapter 2 because he now applies what he is saying. In the light of this prophet, of who this prophet is, he's saying we really need to listen. Listen to how he puts it. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip For if the word spoken by angels, that's a reference to the giving of the Old Testament law, that's a reference to the God speaking in times past by the prophets. If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, in other words, they had to obey what Moses said. They had to obey what the Old Testament prophets said. Every transgression, every disobedience received a just recompense of reward. But he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Here's something bigger and fuller, a more glorious message on a more glorious theme, the theme of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ coming to teach us. He says, if they suffered God's anger because of disobedience to what was said then, how much more we need to heed what is being spoken to us by the Lord. And he underlines this by reminding us that the apostles who 
uh, first preached this gospel and who, through whom the early churches were first established. They had an authentication given to their witness with the miracles and the signs that they did. Those miracles and signs undergirded that first testimony to Jesus Christ. And that's why those miracles and signs were largely confined to that age. Because it's pointing us to Christ, our great prophet. But notice, secondly, we see that this supreme son is also our priest. In verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. It's speaking of Jesus Christ as the one who has removed our sins, who's purified us from our sins. This prophet is also a priest, Now, in the Old Testament, the priesthood were those responsible for the offering up of sacrifices, those responsible for leading the people in the various rites of purification and sacrifice. And they were all anticipatory. They were all foretelling the coming of a greater priest. That's one of the great themes of the letter to the Hebrews. A greater priest who would not offer up animals, who would not offer up the blood of bulls and goats, but would offer up himself as the final sacrifice for our sins. And you'll notice as it leads us to this priest, it tells us that he is the only priest, the only mediator. That word mediator means the one who goes between one and another, the one who brings us to God by himself. He purged our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ did not need the help of his disciples, of his apostles, to offer up himself as a substitute for our sins. He did not need the help of any angel or of any person. By himself he did it. Through his own work on the cross, through his own dying in our place, under the wrath of God for our sins. And you notice that the writer picks out his supremacy here as it it tells us that he was a successful mediator. Not not only the only mediator, but also a successful mediator because he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's finished that work and he's seated because he's no longer doing the work of uh, of, uh, atonement, the, the work of dying for our sins, of being a priest He's now seated. So we don't need other sacrifices. We don't need anything that the church does or claims to do. We don't need even what we would want to do to take away our sins. Because Jesus, by that offering up of himself on the cross, has purged our sins. And then you'll notice something else which is very distinctive here of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is a glorious mediator. In the Old Testament, it was absolutely forbidden for a priest uh, to mix that role 
with any other role such as being a king. So when King Uzzah, Uzziah in the Old Testament, in the days of Old Testament Judah, dared to offer, try and offer up uh, incense, a task that the priests would do, the high priest of the day uh, tried to dissuade him, he insisted, and God struck that man with leprosy. It was forbidden to combine the offices of king and priest because that was, of course, what the idolaters did. That kind of sacral kingship was practiced by idolaters and those who weren't worshipping the true God. But here we see someone <clears throat> who is a glorious mediator, a glorious priest, because we, we read he is the brightness of God's glory, the exact image, the express image of his person, that he is the creator and upholder of all things, and therefore he is uniting not only his role as priest, but also his roles of prophet and indeed of king with his priesthood. And one can only say, what a saviour. What a person to take away your sins. What a person to worship and admire as your priest. And I trust you have and are continuing to bring your sins to him for cleansing and washing and forgiveness. And then we notice thirdly that he is king. Uh, And it's interesting to see how the writer here brings out his kingship. Um, He does it perhaps in a way that's particularly appropriate for the day in which he was living. Many of his readers would have been, would have had absolutely no trouble with believing in the supernatural. Uh, They would have had no trouble, for example, in believing in the work and ministry of angels. But the problem was, in those days, they tended to worship these beings. Uh, And we see continued reflections of that today, for example, in the beliefs of some of the cults, in some of the New Agey type religions today, and also in some of the false religions uh, that a world embracing. They all have their supernatural elements. Uh, But what the writer is here telling us in order to bring out the kingship of Christ, is that he is indeed the king of angels. He's so much better than the angels. He's obtained a more excellent name. Uh, The angels are told to worship him. Uh, We're told that Jesus uh, was not somebody who needed their help, but the angels are there to help him. They're they're there to minister to to him. Of the angels, he said, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Quoting from Psalm 104 that we read earlier. And to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here, many quotations, particularly from the book of Psalms. When the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, she'd heard of his wisdom. We read of it in 1 Kings chapter 10. She'd heard 
that he was rich and he was wise. God had blessed him. And even all the way out there in Sheba, she'd heard about him. And she came to see him. And we read that when she'd seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Now notice what had taken her eyes. It wasn't just the king. It was all his servants. It was the the clothing that his various servants were wearing. It was the gorgeous um, furniture and vessels. And no doubt the gold and the silver. All of that, you see, told her of the greatness of the person. When you see a car going through a city with outriders, police outriders, and a flag on the car, you know it's not just any old person going through the streets. You know it's someone important. And when we think of the servants and the outriders of Christ, when we think of the angels, these burning spirits just ready to do his bidding, when we think of the greatness of the creation that he's made, the valleys, the hills, the streams, the, the animals, the plants, the, the glory of our created world, when we think of the universe, the stars, these are just the outriders. These are just something which tell us of the majesty and the glory of the person himself. No, we don't worship them. We're not to worship them. That's idolatry. We're not to worship the planet. We're not to worship being green, as it were. We're not to worship angels. We're to worship Christ. And he bears within himself these roles combined of priest and king. And that's one of the great themes later in the letter, he's a high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, who was both a priest and a king. He is supreme, and he's supreme in the world today. His supremacy is over Russia, it's over America, it's over Europe, it's over all the nations. It's over Satan, it's over all the angels, good angels and bad angels. To supremacy. And, but as the next chapter makes clear, we do not yet see all things put under him. It hasn't yet fully worked through this glorious supremacy. It's there, but we do not yet see it. Now in this, in chapter 2, we learn about the imminence, the presence, the near presence of the Son. But in chapter 1, we are reminded of the transcendence of the Son, of his glory. And notice something else about his glory, that this glory is absolutely full of his holiness. 
it suffused with holiness, when he had by himself purged our sins. He cannot tolerate sin. And notice his throne is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. And it's because he loves righteousness and hates iniquity that this is an evidence that God has anointed him above all his fellows. This is an evidence of the Christ, that he is absolutely, transcendently, and imminently holy. And again, we see his supremacy in this. The one whom the scriptures and this passage of scripture invites you and me to trust in, to come to and listen to and learn from as our prophet, to beg him to purge our sins as our priest, to submit to him as our king, is utterly righteous. He deals with our sins and he makes us holy like himself. And this is why the Apostle Peter, when he's describing what the gospel does in chapter 3, verse 18 of his first letter, he says, For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He brings us to God. That's the power of the gospel, that we're brought into fellowship and union and delight in this Holy One. And we're made like him in that respect. Let me close now with just a few applications of what I think this passage is teaching. Firstly, what grace it is that God has spoken to us. Whether he spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets, or whether he's spoken to us in these last days, whichever era we had lived in, it's actually God's grace that he even opened his mouth. We could not know him unless he had discovered himself to us. And the Bible word is revelation, revealed himself. We, otherwise, we would not know him. We would see the created order. Yes, we would understand Something about God, but we wouldn't know him as he is in all his fullness unless he had spoken. People say, God does nothing for me. God has done much for you. He's spoken to you. And what grace, secondly, that God has spoken through his son. It was grace in which, which caused him to speak through the prophets, but it's even greater grace that's caused him to speak to us through his son. As Martin Luther puts it, the law is the voice of the servants, but the gospel is the voice of the Lord himself. He's spoken to us in that way, through his son. His son who came into this world to save sinners. His son who came by himself to purge our sins. And thirdly, we see what grace it is that the whole of the Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead, is committed to our salvation. He is the outshining of the glory of God. Uh, Roger Crawshaw reminded us uh, a couple of weeks back that just as the rays of the sun 
bring the Son to us, and yet they're not quite the same as the Son, so the, the Son of God, Jesus, brings to us the Father, and yet they are distinct persons. That's a thought that Augustine gives us. And we see here how the Father, God, who's spoken in these last days by his Son, God the Son, and also God the Spirit, through whom Christ offered himself without spots, as we read later, on the cross. The, the whole of the Godhead is involved in our salvation, in bringing us to know the supremacy of the Son. And then fourthly, we need to understand, <clears throat> as this passage is making very clear to us, that everything that is true of God the Father is true of Jesus as God the Son. That he is the heir of all things, that he made the worlds, that he's the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. Has the Father's sovereignty, so has Jesus, the Son's sovereignty. Has the Father eternity, so has the Son eternity. Has the Father immutability, so has the Son immutability. And when you think of Jesus, you should worship him. You should worship him. You don't just think nice thoughts about him. You don't just cuddle him, but you worship him because he is God, very God. And yet, fifthly, this very God has purged our sin. The word there means purified or carried out a cleansing. And this is a reminder to us that... God is love. You want to understand what God is like? He is love. He's holy love. And he purged our sins. Listen to this promise in Isaiah. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. The perfect, utter cleansing of all your sins if Christ is your saviour. And then my final application. What joy and what confidence should this bring to us even amidst pandemics and death and sadness and heartache and difficulty? What joy, what confidence as we think of the Son, our prophet, our priest, our king, that great one whom we serve, whom we worship, who is our God, our Saviour, and our Mediator, and our Priest.